0: All right, well, good morning to the non-little people as well. Um, yeah, if you don't know me, my name is Jared. I'm one of the elders here, and I'm really excited to be sharing with you all this morning. Um, and this, mo- this morning we're going to spend a lot of our time talking about uh, one particular human emotion. And it's one that we don't often talk about. It's not the typical obvious ones like happiness, sadness. Um, but over the last several decades, a lot of research uh, and attention has been given towards uh, this one specific emotion that we commonly ad- identify as awe. And one of the researchers who's done a lot of study in this area is uh, Pier Carlo Valdicello at Claremont McKenna College, and he describes awe this way. He says that the feeling uh, that occurs when you encounter something unexpected, unexplainable, vast, extraordinary, Uh, You see something that you perhaps haven't noticed before and you realize that there's a lot more to it than you previously had thought. It's almost like you're peering into a world that you hadn't seen before and something is opening up to you for the first time. And many of us, many people in society are looking out at the world today and finding it hard to cope for a lot of reasons. Um, Maybe you've had this experience where it's, coming out of COVID, you're not really sure what it is, what it even is to be yourself anymore. Uh, And our MC this past week actually had a discussion along these lines of what it looks like to move out of a survival mode, of just kind of making it by to something more like thriving. Um, So this research is understandably gaining a lot of traction right now as people are just trying to figure out how do we move forward. Uh, People in the public square are grappling with what life looks like now and how do we even get back to something that looks like normalcy. Another of the research is Lisa Feldman Barrett actually recommends beginning what she calls a habit of cultivating awe in your everyday life, which for those who have some Christian background, probably sounds a little bit familiar, like oh, that's a quiet time. But uh, she explains that having this daily encounter with awe literally rewires your brain. It changes the connections that are being made. And she describes the feeling, the results from that this way. She says that your whole body just goes better, okay. I can now spread out and take up the space that I'm meant to take in the world. And see her recommendation for cultivating this habit um, prompted the good people at National Public Radio, which I listen to on a daily basis, I'm a little bit of a fan, but uh, anyway, uh, they're, they're like, well, we have something for that, let's make this thing on our website and we'll just call it a joy generator and everyone, people can every day people can log onto our website, they can go to the joy generator and they can get their little fix of joy and they can be good to go for the day. And so everywhere we look, people are, crying out for something, trying to figure out how to move forward. Um, and the case being made by these research, researchers that awe is what, what that thing is, is pretty compelling. And see, awe is what the Apostle Paul is expressing in our passage this morning. Uh, if you'll look with me in Romans uh, chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. This is God's word, let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, we can look into your depths endlessly, uh, and that in there we find life, we find the sense of awe that we crave. And we pray that this morning as we examine uh, some of the details of what, uh, what that experience is like that you would cause our hearts to worship and you would draw us uh, deeper into a life with you uh, that transforms us. We pray all this in your name, amen. So if you've been with us the last few weeks, um, you may notice this passage this morning is a little bit different. For one, it's much shorter. It's like three verses instead of 30 verses. Um, but not only that, it, it, it's different in a, a very significant way in that it breaks completely with the flow and style of the surrounding passages. See, previously, Paul's not been in these dense theological arguments, making a case, explaining the ins and outs of his plan for saving the world, uh, but now, it's like we come out into a clearing, a clearing of doxology. And we have a hymn that he's written right here in the middle of his letter, um, in praise to God. And so it might seem out of place at first, and it's certainly unexpected for the average uh, reader. I'm feeding back a little bit. Would forward or backward help, Jared, do you think? I'm good, okay. Um, And so, it might seem out of place, um, and but surely this expression of awe he's, he's uh, expressing is coming from somewhere. Um, and to get the answer for that, uh, let's look together at the content of Paul's praise. He begins, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I see he's marveling at the magnitude of God, his riches and his wisdom and his knowledge. And it's an echo of what the prophet Isaiah said, he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Uh, N.T. Wright tells a story of when he was living in Montreal and he would always have friends come over and visit him from the UK. And without fail, each of them would assume, oh, we'll just pop over to San Francisco for the day and uh, have, a, have a nice day, a weekend trip. And so each time he'd have to pull out his map and he'd show them... Uh, Montreal and San Francisco on this map of, the, of North America. And then in the top right-hand corner, he'd show them a smaller map with the label Britain on the same scale. is about this big. And each time he would see their faces fall as they realized that the journey from Montreal to the West Coast would be longer than the flight they just took across the ocean to get to Montreal in the first place. And he muses in his book, uh, For All God's Worth, what it would be like to have a map in the reverse orientation, right? A map of the UK or a map of Western Europe with a smaller map in the top right-hand corner that was the US at the same scale. And he says that If that were to happen, you would fold it, and unfold it, and unfold it, and unfold it again, until it completely filled the room that you were sitting in. see, that's what our point of view is like with the vastness of God. We have this scaled down interpretation of what it would really be um, to know the depths of who God is. It also reminds me of when I was driving into LA uh, with my dad over 15 years ago now, which is kind of hard to believe that it's been that long. Um, and as we left the desert and the urban sprawl kind of started to creep in, all of a sudden we found ourselves in the middle of a city. And I'll never forget the look on my dad's face. He, he looked, picked up the map real quick and was scanning it, he was like, this, this can't be right. It's like, we can't be in LA already. And then his face kind of fell as he got his bearings, and he was like, oh, this is only Riverside. <laughs> Um, which is no knock against Riverside. I'm sure it's a lovely place. But uh, see, in Houston, where I'm from, there are more parking lots than people. You get outside the urban city and the road just go on for forever. And one time, actually, when we were on our way to the airport coming back, Camden noticed that, I was like, man, I, something I like better about Texas. I don't know what it is. He was like, see that field right there that we're just driving past that just kind of lets me breathe and relax? In LA, that would just be full of buildings. And he was like, he's, he's not wrong. Um, see, my dad, being used to that, had never encountered a city this dense where people are literally, even in the outlying areas, sometimes living on top of each other. See now, no matter of our perspective or understanding of the density and the depths of God, uh, they always fall short of the vast reality. There's always something that will eclipse it and, uh, and just cause us to be taken aback. So the depths of God's riches, how inexhaustibly beautiful, complex, and satisfying is God. It's like the psalmist says, you satisfy me more than with the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. Oh, that we would feast rather than settling for leftovers. The depths of God's wisdom, no matter how much we grow up into the ways of God, the ways that Jesus uh, taught us to live, there's always further to go. We can never exhaust it. The depths of his knowledge, there won't come a day, church, where you come to God and say, what what do I do next? Where do I go next? Where he'll come up short. And what a comfort to us who can barely see around the next corner of our own lives. The depths of God are unfathomable, but oh, that we as a church would continue to dive. And he continues, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. His judgments and decisions are beyond searching. And let me settle something for anyone out there this morning who's been wondering. Despite what you might see on Facebook, you cannot predict what God will do or when Jesus will return based on current events or anything else, even if Sweden does in fact, in fact put microchips in people's hands, still can't make the call, sorry. Uh, there's no Bible code, no conspiracy theory uh, to decode God's plans. His ways and paths are also untraceable. You guys may be familiar with the idea of machine learning. This technology, uh, sometimes call it artificial intelligence, And the idea is that you feed enough examples of something into uh, the program or algorithm that eventually it will spit out a result that you expect. I was listening to a podcast recently talking about how the TikTok algorithm is becoming unsettlingly good in this way where people, after hours and hours of using it, uh, because it serves up so many data points, unlike any other uh, app, uh, literally hundreds of data points per minute when you click off a video, when you click onto it, when you get tired of watching it and switch to the next one, what's happening in the video, when that happens, all of this data is going somewhere in China. <laughs> and uh, it's informing that essentially artificial intelligence. And it's gotten to the point where people are beginning to report TikTok serving them videos about health conditions that they've never told anyone they have. And, personality quirks that they thought they were the only one who suffered from. And people are, like, they're, they're, no one has not been able to answer the question of how this is happening. It's some, something in the idiosyncrasies of our behavior in this app is causing it to literally be able to trace the paths of humanity and of how our brains work. And then people, it turns out, are, some, are, are quite traceable in that way. And I think sometimes we expect God to be the same way, that somehow we'll we'll eventually get to the point where you have enough information where we'll have a grasp on that. And indeed, many have dismissed the notion of God entirely on the basis that he can't be traced. But the funny thing is we don't do that with anything else in life that really matters. Like, can you imagine the physicist who says, you know what, I'm no longer interested in the big questions of the universe because they're not easily knowable or accessible, so yeah, I give up. Or the philosopher or biologist who just says, yeah, love must not exist because we haven't figured out a way to prove it, either through the scientific method or through philosophical proofs, so love is no longer a thing. It's like, no, that is precisely the opposite of human nature. Our curiosity is tempted because of the way we're wired. The more something appears unknown, the more we press into it. See, something within us comes alive when the limits of our, of our understanding are transcended. And that's when we experience this emotion of awe. In one of these studies that Pier Carlo Valdicello conducted, they did a test. They wanted to see. All right, we know that people who have a religious background or who have a, are theists versus non-theists are more likely to react in awe. But will they, or more, more likely to ascribe awe to a supernatural source. But what, how does it change their view of science? And so they did the study where they gave uh, each group a ordered explanation for a scientific phenomenon like evolution, and a disordered explanation for it of random chaos. And what they found was overwhelmingly, when they induced awe in these subjects they were doing the tests on, uh, theists and non-theists alike, with no difference, gravitated towards the orderly explanation, even for the scientific theory that they were postulating, um, rather than the random chaos. I see even those who would not describe themselves as believers have this tell, um, just like what I was talking with the kids about, where they they have this clue in their soul that the Creator has put there, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, uh, because He is actually not far from each one of us, as the Apostle Paul famously preached in Athens. But you're probably saying, this is all great. I believe it. Theoretically, um, but it's not enough to objectively know that God is infinitely deep and transcendent. Somehow that, that doesn't produce the rich food that my soul craves. Um, should I really just go to NPR's Joy Generator every day and log in and see whatever videos they have that are supposed to spark that thing in my brain? Is that all there is? And there's something, like it's fun, it was funny to me when I first heard it, but there's also something tragic which the space between comedy and tragedy is quite small. There's something tragic about this picture of an entire culture of people religiously seeking out a disembodied experience of awe, Um, where any source um, that that awe might come to them from has lost all meaning or value. Is that all there is? Or did Paul taste something better that led him to praise? He goes on in verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? And here we get to the crucial struggle of the human condition. And the truth that Paul experiences in response is what ignites his worship and his awe. See, the struggle of Israel, of Paul's life and generations before him, was an awareness that the world was not the way that it was meant to be. Things were not going well. When they looked out at the state of the world, they were confronted with the painful reality that God's kingdom had not come as far as they knew. He had been silent. Caesar's kingdom continued to reign, it seemed, and God had been silent. And there were different opinions in the Jewish world for why this was, what the, what the right solution was, uh, and the different opinions led to different factions, uh, if you can imagine that happening in our day and age. Uh, and the Pharisees, of which Paul was a part, concluded that the reason for God's silence must be that they just weren't keeping the law closely enough. Surely a stricter adherence to the law would do the trick, even creating additional statutes to put around the law, like scaffolding, so that no one would even accidentally transgress and trespass the law. And they zealously pursued these plans of righteousness that they were convinced would eventually force the kingdom of God to come, which for them meant Rome being overthrown. And Paul describes their actions in Romans 9, as we went through a few weeks ago, Uh, And it's rendered this way in the message. Instead of trusting God, they took over. They were absorbed in what they themselves were doing. They were so absorbed in their God projects that they didn't notice God right in front of them. Like a huge rock in the middle of the road. And so they stumbled into him and went sprawling. See, they were so determined to get the outcome they expected from their religious projects that they took over uh, to acting to induce God's action, uh, to give to God that they might be repaid the outcome that they knew they were due. And we aren't any different, Jew or Gentile, religious or irreligious. We all have expectations that will lead to the good life, the life that we hope will happen for us, right? We're tired of things not being the way they should be. So we take over sometimes. We act out for ourselves, for our plans and our desires, and we convince ourselves that we're not hurting anyone. And I'm sure they had similar justifications in their mind, uh, even as they joined the crowd shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. But this was not how God was supposed to come to us, they said. was supposed to save us from Rome. He hadn't listened, he didn't listen to our counsel. These are not the decisions and paths that we trace for God. Where is he? See, this was not the God they wanted. And oftentimes he's not the God that we want. He didn't order our lives as we'd hoped. Why is my job not going the way that I expect? Doesn't God see how hard I'm working? For those of us serving and leading in the church, doesn't he see how much I care? Why don't I see the impact that I expected and hoped for? For parents, I love my kids. We love our kids so much and we pour, do our best to pour all that love into them, but why is sometimes it's such a struggle and obedience still so hard? Or how about the people we're on mission to, as as Tripp challenged us in a few weeks ago? Are we getting tired because we're saying, God, doesn't God, um, doesn't God care? Doesn't he care that we've been laboring for years? Why aren't we seeing the kind of fruit we expected? Why isn't he repaying us for all this effort we put in? And then there's the violence, the racism, the inequality, and the injustice in our world today. When will there be enough awareness and momentum to change things? When will God act? See, no matter what we give to him, somehow we never seem to be repaid. Because he's not the God we wanted or imagined, Um, not the God on our own scale, the tiny one in the top right corner of the map. He's the transcendent God who amazingly wanted us. As N.T. Wright puts it, the clay jars of the gods that we wanted uh, reinforce our own pride and prejudice until they fall away and reveal instead a very different God, a dangerous God, a subversive God, a God who comes to us like a blind beggar with wounds in his hands. A God who comes to us in the wind and fire, in bread and wine, in flesh and blood, a God who says to us, you did not choose me, I chose you. His ways are not our ways, and his plans are not our plans. You cannot put him in your debt. He gave himself for you freely. Look at the depths of his riches and wisdom and knowledge, at the deep waters and the hollows of his hand, as as the prophet Isaiah said that none have measured. They are waters of mercy filling the nail holes that he bore for you and for me. And Lisa Feldman Barrett, uh, the words in her explanation of awe were haunting for me in a way. That deep sigh, I can finally spread out and take up the space that I'm meant to take in the world. Do you ever wonder why there's that thing inside of us sometimes that feels the need to justify even taking up space in the world around us? Like, why can't we just rest when we rest? And I think it's because we know that that taking over, that trying to put God in our debt, is at least somewhat the cause of the world being what it is today. That on a global scale across billions of people um, is at the center of what's wreaking havoc in the world. And when it says that the Israelites stumbled into him and went sprawling, we can miss the violence in that statement. See, their self-made plans for how they wanted the kingdom of God to come caused them to violently crash into Jesus. It wasn't a light stumbling or a trip. Have you ever found yourself making excuses for why doing the right thing seems to end up hurting people around you when in your mind it seems so right? I See, in our culture, we don't often use this word in its uh, intended connotation. Normally, it's against unjust forces. Uh, But when it comes to God, this posture that we're talking about is a rebellion and not in the source of liberation, but in the, in, the, in the sort of deeper imprisonment. See, choosing the God we want rather than receiving the God who has chosen us, uh, they didn't even realize he was the very person their souls were craving and the one they'd been looking for. But thanks be to God as we saw in Romans 11 last week that once we Gentiles were rebels against God, But when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to us instead. Now they are the rebels, and God's mercy has come to us so that they too will share in God's mercy. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so he could have mercy on everyone. See, the very act of rebellion that destroyed the Son of God was the same act that brought mercy to the world. Which I think begins to get to the truth that was blowing Paul's mind in our passage. The stone of stumbling that Israel crashed into became the cornerstone of our sure foundation, uh, the foundation that cannot be shaken. And this happened not in spite of their stumbling, but through the very act itself. The very act meant as a rebellion against God became the mechanism, became a mechanism for God's mercy. And the point is this, none of us are different from each other. We have all at times, religious or irreligious, found ourselves on the outside, in rebellion, on the outside from God. And he continually comes to us with mercy, wounds in his hands to welcome us home, turning our sin and tears into love and joy. And there we find not always the life we wanted, uh, but the life that we so deeply need. Oh, the depths of the riches, wisdom, and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. And now we too join Paul in his praise. And Paul finishes his praise leaving no doubt where our source of awe is to be found. He concludes in verse 36, "For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. See, all was never meant to be this disembodied emotion that we're after from generic sources. That's not why we have the capacity to experience it. It was always meant to lead us to Jesus and carry us into praise as we behold the embodied mercy of our Savior. All things are from him and through him and to him, and it's him we've been craving all along the depths of the riches, wisdom, and knowledge only he offers. Not some disembodied awe that we come to over and over. It reminds me of the woman at the well who asked Jesus rightly, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come here to draw water. Jesus, I'm so tired of going over and over to these generic places looking for life, looking for my soul to come alive, Give me this water instead. I want to live my life in the essence of this doxology instead. But then Paul kind of turns it. Out of nowhere, he says, that's not everything. Doxology is only the beginning of our worship. It's only the beginning of the effect this awe is meant to have on our lives. And we'll see more next week. Um, but here is a teaser, uh, Verse uh, chapter 12 goes on, "'Therefore, brothers and sisters, "'in view of the mercies of God, "'I urge you to present your bodies "'as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. "'This is your true worship.'" See, true worship starts as a hymn of praise and always continues to presenting our very bodies to God. There is no other way for worship to be true. See, the only response to receiving embodied mercy through Jesus in the body of our Savior is becoming the embodied of mercy, the mercy of Jesus coming out of us. See, from him and to him and through him are all things. In view of of God's, viewing his unfathomable mercies, offer your bodies to God the same way. Which sounds all well and good, But if you think to yourself of times where mercy has been required in your life, you know that mercy doesn't come easy. Mercy is not just a switch you turn on in your own soul to begin uh, to love people and care for people and um, the way Tim Keller describes it, the essence of forgiveness or the essence of mercy is absorbing pain instead of giving it, which never comes easy. And mercy actually goes beyond forgiveness in that it's not only absorbing the pain directed at you. Mercy going out to others involves absorbing the suffering and pain of others, even when it has nothing to do with you. And that starts to sound a lot like becoming a living sacrifice. But that's what Jesus has done for us. Bearing our pain, sin, and death in his own body and bringing it to nothing. And when we view his mercy, we have all the resources that we need to do the same. Because while we are desperately ordering our lives so that we might be repaid, he gave us life. He gave his life to offer us mercy that cannot be repaid. And that is why we say, To him be glory forevermore. Is when we behold that glory, we are changed. And his glory is made manifest in us, shining into all the world. And there are a few ways to respond this morning, hearing that news. Maybe today you just need to receive his mercy, to stop trying to put him in your debt, to forsake the gods that you wanted and that you feel like you've earned and to receive forgiveness from the God you need, the God who came for you, the God whose transcendent mercy makes us come alive with awe. And the catch there is that we can't receive mercy so long as we're trying to put God in our debt. Receive his mercy today. And maybe you need to receive Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for you for the first time. For the first time, tasting his mercy. Tasting his mercy is liberate, that liberates you from the need to justify your place in the world ever again uh, and liberates you to a new life of extending mercy to others. Maybe that's you, you need to receive that for the first time. Um, or maybe today, God is extending His mercy through you, and there's a conversation you need to have or someone you need to care for that God's been putting on your heart lately. Maybe you need to engage in some true worship with him in that way and follow in what he 's calling you to whatever it is this morning i 'll be in the back to pray afterwards, as well as uh, Brad and Tripp and any of the and Jeff and the the other elders and if you want prayer I just invite you to come to us and, and share whatever you feel like sharing and we'd love to pray with you for whatever God's calling you to this morning today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts receive his mercy and come home why should we linger and not heed his mercies mercy for you and me Weary ones, come home. Earnestly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, O sinner, come home. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you welcome us to you. Uh, No matter what we've done or where we've been or the pain that we've caused intentionally or unintentionally, uh, Jesus, you came to take that pain away, uh, to take that sin away and to uh, die a death to remove that death, and to give us new life. And you rose again, Uh, you rose again so that we uh, could have that life with you uh, on this earth and forevermore. Uh, Jesus, it's your glory that we crave, and we pray that this morning you would help us to behold your glory, um, to be captivated in awe. Um, But Jesus, we pray that that awe would result in mercy, uh, mercy that the world around us so desperately needs. We pray all this in your name, amen. So as we go to the communion table this morning, um, go with those around you, go with your communities or your families uh, and take in to your body Jesus' body given for you, his blood shed for you so that you could have mercy, so that you could have life in his name. And if, uh, if you would like prayer, again, we'll be in the back. So go now and um, respond however the Lord is calling you this morning.